Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. The journey was more important than the destination, and the people I met along the way is what I remember. It isn't the pains in my feet, it isn't the pains in my knees, it's the people, and it's the journey itself. That's this week's guest, James Geyer, and we'll get to James in a moment, but first, this is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago. The Camino came into my life via the Shirley MacLaine book, The Camino, back in the early 2000s. And I revisited the book after the death of my little brother, Ben, in 2010. Promised myself I'd walk the Camino one day. And I eventually stepped foot on the Camino in 2016, arriving in Santiago, exhausted, exhilarated, renewed and rejuvenated. And I was somehow enlivened by the experience. And if you've walked the Camino, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you're thinking of walking the Camino, you can look forward to a great weight being lifted off your shoulders. And most of it is the weight of wondering if a place like the Camino exists. Well, it does exist. It's an ancient pilgrimage under the blessing of Christ's Apostle St. James. James' remains are interred in a majestic cathedral in the old city of Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain. St. James under a field of stars. The city itself is a wonderful place, full of wonder and The Camino is a series of pilgrimages across Europe, powerful paths of discovery. And it doesn't matter if you're looking to find hope, peace, fellowship, solace, charity or understanding, majestic landscape, you'll discover them all on the Camino. And it's the discovery of this place of enlightenment that gives you the courage to let the light in. This opportunity to explore that provides a window for a step-by-step recovery of the soul. Many pilgrims take a small stone from home and carry it with them on the Camino. It's meant to represent your intention. You then place that stone and your intention at the foot of what's called Cruz de Ferro or the Iron Cross. It's about an hour and a half's walk from the small town of Rabanel del Camino. I cried like a baby the first time I saw Cruz de Ferro and I don't know why. And I've really never thought too much about why I cried. But I know, though, there's a very special energy there. Perhaps it's the thousands and thousands of intentions stacked beneath the cross providing a glow, a warmth, in a way, to provide energy to pilgrims as they march on the final 200 kilometres to Santiago. And I met a Canadian pilgrim at the Cruz de Ferro in 2017, Jean. There were people milling everywhere, dozens of pilgrims, and a busload of tourists were crawling up the midden of stones, pausing for photographs and praying, hoping and wishing. And out of nowhere, the scene cleared and Jean walked to the top of the rise, placed his hand on the cross and prayed silently to himself. And I grabbed my phone and took a photo. Later that evening, we were in Molina Seca, a little town by the river. Jean wandered down to the river to join us to soak his feet in the water. And I showed him the picture and I hadn't really looked at it even myself but it was absolutely perfect. There he was, all alone, with the deep blue sky framing him and his intention. At the Cruz de Ferro, a tuft of cloud provided a a shimmer of light across the sky. Jean was delighted, and I know that picture is now hanging on his wall. A picture of a Canadian praying at an iron cross in Spain, taken by an Australian. Our worlds colliding at a site renowned for providing a place for intention to reside and our worlds oscillating wildly. We took our leap of faith. The American author Veronica Roth wrote in her book Allegiant, There are so many ways to be brave in this world. Sometimes bravery involves laying down your life for something bigger than yourself or for someone else. Sometimes it involves giving up everything you have ever known or everyone you have ever loved for the sake of something greater. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's nothing more than gritting your teeth through pain and the work of every day, the slow walk toward a better life. That is the sort of bravery I must have now. My guest this week is James Geyer. He's on the line from Southern California. Welcome, Pilgrim. Hello, Dan. It's good to be here. Yeah. Let me ask you first up, did you have to step out of your comfort zone to find yourself on the Camino? 
I was very definitely out of my comfort zone. Uh, the whole Camino experience um, came to me sort of unexpectedly. And while I did some research to learn about it, it was very much out of my comfort zone. And sometimes looking back, even though I've walked the Camino Frances twice now, looking back, it was, it's been five years since that first walk. Looking back, I look, I say, wow, I went to Paris by myself. I found the train to the south of France by myself. I figured out where to go in St. John de Port to go to the pilgrim's office. I did all this stuff <laughs> by myself. It was very much out of my comfort zone, but um, also very memorable and um and I would like to return again to walk maybe a different route. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about that journey there, all of those little steps that you take is all part of the pilgrimage though, isn't it? Yes, from learning about what you need to take to figuring out what to pack to getting a plane ticket, figuring out how to, how to traverse just getting to the starting point, all those little steps, there's yeah. many of them. And it starts maybe even, for me, months before I actually made my way there. Yeah, or even your entire life because you're named after St. James. Yes, my, my parents named me for St. James the Greater, and my middle name, Christopher, is for St. Christopher the I believe is the patron saint of travelers. Many times through my life, when people heard that I was named after St. James, they asked me, have you heard of that pilgrimage in Spain to the cathedral where his remains are interred? And I answered, well, yes, but I don't know that I need to make a pilgrimage. Um, I probably did, but so about Six years ago now, or seven years ago, maybe, my mother passed away. She was 94 and had lived a very nice, long life and passed away very quietly one night. And I, I went from Southern California up to Washington State to the services. And on my flight back, the people in the seats next to me were talking about the Camino de Santiago almost as if somebody were tapping me on the shoulder saying, James, it's time. <laughs> so that was my, my um, wake-up call, so to speak, and yeah. I decided that my motivation was to honor my parents, both of whom were now passed, to, because they named me after St. James. So I did take two small stones from the beach near where I live with me to leave at Cruz de Ferro. And it was also a very, just as it was for you, it was a very um, powerful moment that I think I honored my parents by leaving their stones there. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it is about that place. I guess, as I said in the introduction, it may be that millions of pilgrims before have placed their intentions there. It's just such a magic vibe. I mean, it's, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? It's a powerful place. It was a very powerful place. It was very moving to me and uh, the first time. The second time, not so much, so I don't know why. But the first time, it was very moving. It was very quiet and peaceful. There was only one or two other people there. And it was a very foggy day. And just the, the mood of the, of the weather was a little cool and windy. Not terribly windy, but a little bit. Yeah. And and foggy, and just the mood was very, I wouldn't say somber, but very serious and very uh, reverent. And I just, um, I loved it. It was very powerful. And then, of course, the hike down to Molina Seca is a bit of a challenge, but... Uh, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, but that Cruz de Ferro is a very special place. Yeah, and, yeah. 
No, I, I love it. I love it. You wrote to me to say that the first pilgrimage was magical. You said it's spiritual, it's religious and magical. Tell us about the religious aspect of it. Um, have you always been religious or was it something that the Camino perhaps drew out of you or, or took you back to a, a religious part of your life? Tell us about that. Well, I was, I was raised Catholic in a, in a household in which um, we, we attended Mass once or twice a week and always, um, especially on the, the holy days. And um, so I was, I was raised fairly close to the church, but drifted apart from it, although I always, it was always part of my life, but I stopped really attending Mass as I became, once I attended university and I was away from my parents and when I would go home, I, I went to Mass every Sunday with my parents and my sisters. And then when I left the university and got a job in Southern California, it just, it just sort of never became important. Although I identify as myself as a Catholic, I guess I'm not what would be called a practicing Catholic. Yeah. But when, when my mother passed away and... I came back from the services hearing about the Camino and with the intention and the motivation to make my way to Spain to make that pilgrimage. I, well, I didn't immediately start going to Mass. There's a church in a small town near where I live called Solana Beach, which is called St. James. And I have attended Mass at St. James several times before I went back to the Camino. And then, as, as you know, along the Camino in many of these small towns, the church is sort of the center of their community. Yeah. And they have a Mass every evening. And because of my wanting to understand the whole culture of the Camino, I attended the Pilgrim's Masses almost every day if I could depending on how long I'd walked and what the situation was. Um, but most many towns have those churches and have a mass in the evening, which some of us call Pilgrim's Mass. What I saw was that it's a, a community coming together. It's like these people come to mass every night, and then they these are mostly small farm towns. And then after mass, they don't just disappear they talk with each other it's, yeah. it's a bond it's a bonding of the community and it's really kind of beautiful to see that and they welcome the pilgrims because they've been supporting pilgrims for millennia yeah and it's it's quite um it, it deepened my faith and it um deepened my religion and i've i've stayed closer to the church since I've gotten back, but not what my mother would expect, but better. Yeah. I'm better. You, you can't help but have your faith reinvigorated because of the, the nature of the walk and the, those beautiful churches, as you say. Um, it, it, it's just such a magical place. It's just so fantastic, as you said. But just take a step back a little bit. If you're on the plane coming back from Washington State. You heard some people talking about the Camino. And then how long did it take? And you might take us through the research, the planning. Is it easy to plan a, a Camino in, in California? I mean, were you able to find all the resources you needed? Is it easy to get there to Spain from, from where you were? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. I just started out by going onto a Google search and searched Camino de Santiago. Right. One of the first things I found was the Camino Forum, which is run by Ivar out of Santiago de Compostela. And it's a forum which is English language, and um, many people from many countries participate in this forum. And many of the participants have walked Camino routes many times, 10, 12, 14 times. Some of these people, I think, walk every year. Um, almost like a sport, but it wasn't. But they're also very serious about it. So I found that by searching on the Camino Forum, you can get answers to almost any question. Yeah. And if you don't find it, 
I, I basically lurked what I call lurked. I just read and watched and looked at new posts and new conversations on the forum for a few months before I, I dared ask a question myself. And I was almost flattered with how welcoming the people there are and how eager they are to share their experience knowing that their opinion is, is an opinion and they're upfront about that. This is what I like. You may not find this. So yeah. it, it's a, it's a wonderful forum and the moderators keep it on track. And, um, I, I found I was able to do quite a bit of research just on that forum. And then, um, I was also, I joined the American Pilgrims on the Camino, which is the American um, organization yeah. that, that is provides information for prospective and returning pilgrims. And there, there, there is a San Diego chapter here in San Diego, and I attended a couple of uh, gatherings they had and asked some people some questions and. Um, got to know a few people a little bit before I made the pilgrimage. So it, it didn't take very long to know what I needed to take with me. Also, I have spent some time in northern Thailand yeah. on what I call my yoga-focused trips. And so I, I, I'm not a stranger to international travel, and I, so it was fairly simple to tailor my travel needs from my yoga focused trip to Northern Thailand to a trip to Spain to walk the Camino. I needed some hiking shoes. I needed, um, I bought the type of trousers that could zip off if I wanted shorts. I never thought I'd ever wear those in my life, but I, I have a couple pair of those now. And I, I got some hiking poles and I got a good hat that would work in rain or sun. And it was fairly easy to adapt to um, what I needed. As far as getting to Spain from Southern California, yeah. there are, there are nonstop flights from Los Angeles to Paris. And since I was starting in the south of France, I, the options would be either nonstop to Paris or nonstop to Madrid. But getting to St. John Pied de Port from Madrid is not as easy as getting from Paris to, to St. John Pied de Port, which is a train ride to Bayonne and then a another train, shorter train ride from Bayonne to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. So it was fairly simple to make those logistics. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wasn't too hard. And then finding the pilgrim's office was not very difficult either at, in Saint-Jean. Yeah. Up the top of they were the... full of information and yeah. great volunteers there. I love them. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's fantastic. You go to the top of the hill there. It's wonderful. You know, um, I, right. I, I said in the introduction, it doesn't matter if you're looking to find hope or peace or fellowship, solace or charity, perhaps it's understanding or even perhaps it's a majestic landscape you're looking for. But you sent me a wonderful quote um, from Jack Hitt who said, one of the cool things about the road to Santiago is that almost any motivation to go ends up being a great one. I wondered, I know you said before you wanted to honour your parents, but was that your only motivation, or were you perhaps looking for something more? Well, I, I still don't have an answer to that question. I know my motivation was to honor my parents, and I wanted to also make this pilgrimage to see what effect it would have on me, but also, I, you know, I've read quite a few books about by people who've walked the Camino and about the Camino. Uh, one of my favorites is from Nancy Fry uh, called Pilgrim Stories. And, uh, but another favorite is uh, by a, a fellow 
a, a citizen of Sydney named Bill Bennett, who um, yeah. wrote a really good book about the Camino. And, but they, so, and, and they, all these, many pilgrims have profound experiences, and that's why they write the books. But I, I don't know that my experience was that profound, but I, I had, my, my motivation was just to see what would happen. And what happened was so far out of my comfort zone, but it's a pattern of you walk every day, then you wash your clothes, you eat, you sleep, you get up the next day, you eat and walk and eat and get to where you're staying. It, it, it's a cycle, but it's different every day, even though it's the same. But it's different every day. Each town is different. Each each uh, meal is different. I mean, the um, some people say, "Well, I got tired of, of what we call French fries in the United States with all these meals." But they were many times very different. <laughs> I I um, and on the subject of food, just briefly, I I lots of people as you get close to Galicia love that Galician vegetable soup, which is a Galician vegetable, something similar to a large cabbage. Yeah. And I tried it, and I didn't care for it at all. But also, as you get close to Galicia, there many places offer lentil soup. And the lentil soup I loved. And it was different every place I had it. And I had it many times in starting after Leon on up into, you know, Cruz de Ferro and um, Osobrero and all these places. I got lentil soup and it was different every time and clearly made there and made by their hands. And oh, it was, there's so many great experiences, but the, so back to the motivation, I was just looking to see what would happen and experience it and learn from it. Yeah. And when I did get to Santiago de Compostela, it was pretty magical. Although I, I was going to walk on to Finisterre, and I did. And I, when I got to Santiago the first time, all the people I had been walking with were either behind me or had gotten ahead of me. And so I was kind of by myself. And I, and I was happy, and it was pretty magical. And I did go to a pilgrim's mass at the cathedral, and they did swing the Buddha Fumero. And it was pretty special. But then when I was walking on, on my walk to Finisterre the next day, I... There's a you sweep around a long, long kind of gradual arc, and for a good half a kilometer, you can see the cathedral to your left. Yeah. And I was pondering, why wasn't I more elated when I got to Santiago? After all, that was my goal. That's why I made this pilgrimage. Yeah. What and what came to me. I'm not going to recite the whole quote, but what came to me is this quote, which, well, I'll, I'll, I think I can recite it. The journey home is never a direct route. It is, in fact, always circuitous. And somewhere along the way, we discover that the journey is more significant than the destination and that the people we meet along the way will be the traveling companions of our memories forever. Wow. And that's exactly it. Yeah, the that's journey, awesome. The, the journey was more important than the destination. And the people I met along the way is what I remember. It isn't the pains in my feet. It isn't the pains in my knees. It's the people. And it's the journey itself. And that's why I wasn't more elated when I got to Santiago, because getting to Santiago meant that for the most part, the journey was over. Yeah. And I and I love the journey. The journey is what drew me back. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting because 
you wrote to me to say that you felt like you had unfinished business after the first time you walked. And your, I, your thinking was there was some anxiety on that first one, mostly subconscious, but you, you know, thinking how, how steep is the hill? Uh, how difficult is this downhill? Will I find places to eat? So you thought you would go back um, and, well, and, and, and immerse yourself more in the beauty and the spiritual aspects of it. But then, then there's another quote from Jack Hit. You think you went for one reason and you end up going for a whole multiplicity of other reasons and they're all fascinating and that question never goes away and never gets fully or satisfactorily answered. So I suppose you could keep going back time and time again, couldn't you, and finding different reasons <laughs> and finding different answers. Tell us, yes. about, tell us about the second Camino and, and, and you might also, James, tell us kind of what you learned about yourself um, the second time, you, now that you had a bit of a deeper dive, as it were. Well, I would say um, the second time I knew a lot more about what to expect each day. I knew that I wouldn't remember every detail, but I had deliberately decided to walk the same route because that mostly subconscious anxiety wouldn't, would likely be much smaller or much more diminished because I would understand what each day would bring. And therefore, I, as I said, and as you quoted my email, I could immerse myself more in the beauty, the meditative, the spiritual, and even the religious aspects of the Camino. And it was all that and more. It was a much deeper experience the second time because I did feel much less rushed. I don't know that I felt rushed the first time, but there was, where am I going to stay? Am I going to find a good place? And yeah. Where am I going to eat? And so you're, you're concerned about that, and you know it's going to work out because it's worked out for so many people for so many years. But the second time, you have a much deeper confidence that everything's okay and you can walk and you can um, find the right place and the right places to eat, to stay, to, to do everything, get water, get food. It, it's, it's a, but so there's much more time to see things, to really observe and much more time to experience the, the culture and attend the pilgrim's masses. And while I didn't attend a good number the first time, I attended more the second time. And, and also had more time to interact, not a lot, but a little bit more with some of the locals here and there. And it was, it was just a, a deeper experience yeah. um, overall because of that. Much feeling much less hurried because I knew what, what was coming. Yeah, you knew what was coming. Yeah, I really like it. You know, <clears throat> um, you wrote also in that same email, you said that you learned fairly early on that albergues were not for you. Yes, I, I, um, I have often thought of myself as an introvert and nobody who knows me or interacts with me thinks of me as an introvert because I'm talkative and I'm, I'm, I meet people, I like to meet people, I like to be with people, but I need some downtime by myself to re-energize. I don't get re-energized by being around other people. And when I did stay in an albergue a few times, I couldn't I didn't feel rested and I didn't feel re-energized at all. And I know lots of people do, and that's great. But I just started seeking out private accommodations and booking ahead a few days, which takes away some of the spontaneity, but it, it worked out okay. So I, I, and I, by staying in private accommodations where I had downtime to myself, I did get energized. I still met the people who were staying in albergues for dinner. I walked with them. I just stayed in a different place and slept in a different place. So yeah, right. I, I know there are some people who 
are a little bit judgmental and saying, well, real pilgrims stay in albergues. But I'm not so sure if you go back in history, um, the albergues came later. Pilgrims stayed in whatever accommodation they could. Some of that was associated with churches or in the church or on the steps of the church. But if you go back to medieval times, albergues didn't exist and they may have emerged as an offshoot from the churches, but they're, they're really a fairly newer um, concept. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. You, everybody can walk their own journey. It doesn't really matter. There's no steadfast rules. And I think you get much more out of it if you do look after yourself and, 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 and do as you so please. And that's the key. That's the key. The key is looking after yourself, looking out for yourself. If you need to take a rest day, you take a rest day. If your feet hurt, you deal with your feet however you have to, maybe changing shoes. On my second Camino, I got I um, I got a pair for the first Camino. I got a pair of hiking boots. So, you know, they're mid what they're called mid top hiking boots, about um, well, we would say about seven inches high. I'm not sure what that is in centimeters. Never, nevertheless, mid top hiking boots, and I broke them in, and I took them with me, and I walked the whole Camino, and I had not. A single blister. So I had read that hiking boots typically last between a thousand to twelve hundred kilometers. And given that the Camino Francaise is eight hundred kilometers, I thought, well, that means my hiking boots are gonna give out halfway through my second Camino. <laughs> So I bought the same size, the same brand, a second pair. Yeah. I went through the same routine to break them in. And day one, walking up to um, out of St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port, over the hill to Ranches Fias, I got a blister the size of what we would call in America the silver dollar on the back of one of my heels. And so I couldn't hike in those boots anymore. So I dealt with it as best I could. And I walked in some sandals that I had until I got to Burgos. And then I found a store there that was really outstanding in terms of they didn't speak a lot of English, but they knew exactly what I was looking for and helped me try on a number of pairs until one was comfortable and didn't hurt my heel, and I was able to finish the Camino in that. But the, the point is you take care of yourself. Whatever it takes, you do it if your goal is to finish the Camino. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are some pilgrims who get tendonitis or get blisters so bad that they can't continue, and I'm sure they mostly regret it, and I hope they get a chance to come back and finish someday if they did have to stop early. So, but I was able to finish both times. Yeah, although you did end up in a hospital. Um, well, that was the first time, and that was, that was an important lesson. I, about the time I got to Fromista, I became very sick, and um, basically I had what is called diarrhea, and... I found I had travel insurance, so I contacted them and I said, "Is there a doctor in this town? Because I'm very sick." And, and it, as you get dehydrated, you, you at least my mood started getting darker. Like I just want to go home. I'm done. So they, I saw a doctor in Fromista. It's a smaller town, but they did have a clinic, and this doctor who spoke a little bit of English. And, she checked me out and said, you don't have a, an infection, you have no fever. So I'm, she prescribed me some anti-diarrhea medicine. I think it's called a paramide or something like that. So I couldn't walk that day. I was feeling poorly, but I needed to get to Carrion de las Canas because, as I said, I was booking 
places to stay ahead and it was going to be hard to cancel and rebook and you know I'll do all that so yeah. I I actually skipped a stage and took a taxi to carry on to Las Condes and I was a little I was very kind of bummed because I I was staying in the monastery there and it's half a, a monastery and half a small hotel and I really wanted to explore it. It's supposed to be a magical place and a wonderful place, but I was too ill. So I contacted the, I was feeling too bad to look up the Spanish phone number. I contacted the U.S. toll-free number for the travel insurance company. And I gave them my case number and I said, I need some help with somebody speaking Spanish because I don't speak much Spanish and they don't speak much English here. But I need to find a doctor in this town because I'm getting worse. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, well, we speak Spanish. And I said, well, I thought I called the number in the United States. And she said, oh, when you call the number, that number, you get someone in the country you're in. Right. We speak, we speak Spanish. <laughs> just the way she said it, it just made me laugh. We speak Spanish. And then she said, let me call the place you're staying and we'll figure out what to do. She called me back in five minutes and said, a doctor and nurse will be at your room in 15 minutes to evaluate you. Oh my gosh, Dan. What? 15 minutes later, a doctor and nurse knock on my door and they came to check me out to see if I was okay and see what was wrong. Wow. And the, and the doctor said, this medication is good, but you're so dehydrated, your system can't get going again. So we're going to get you a taxi. We're going to take you to the clinic. We're going to give you an IV. We're going to get you hydrated so you can get going. And so after that was all, we went through all that. After it was all done, he told me, if you're not better tomorrow, you come back here. Well, I was not better the next day. Really? And I went back there, and he saw me in the hallway, and he pulled me aside. And he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm, I'm no better. So he had conferred with another doctor. They checked me out some more. You know, 15 or 20 minutes later, I'm in an ambulance, no lights or sirens, but I'm being transported to Palencia, which is about 40 kilometers south of Carrion de las Condes. It's a big regional hospital. And I'll tell you, in the admitting area, this, this um, doctor was a woman, and she, she ordered, she spoke really good English, and she ordered a, a thorough set of tests. Then she came back to me and she said, after you know, a half hour, 45 minutes when the test results came back, she said, you have two problems and we can take care of these. You have, you're very dehydrated, which is not a surprise. And you have a bacteria. And then she said, and we know this bacteria. This bacteria does not create a fever, which is why the doctors you saw did not think you had a bacteria but we know this bacteria and it responds really well to antibiotics. So we're going to put you in a room and we're going to give you the antibiotics and continue the saline IV so you can get hydrated and you'll be here one day or maybe two. And I was in a very dark place emotionally and at that point and I just I just I couldn't imagine continuing. I just wanted to go home. And so I asked her, is there an airport or a train station nearby? Because I need to make plans to go back to Southern California. And she looked at me and like, what? And she, she said, she looked at her clipboard and she said, all these tests tell me you're very healthy. And then she, she looked me right in the eye and she said, your Camino is important. When you walk into that cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, you will understand. We're going to help you get well so you can continue your pilgrimage. And then she looked at me again and she said, your Camino is important. Wow. And I just, I get 
goosebumps right yeah. now just thinking about it because I can hear her voice and how serious she was. And keep in mind, this, this hospital isn't on the Camino route. It's 40 or more kilometers south. They don't see pilgrims every day. But then as I was up in the room, they put me in these moved, moved me up to a room. Then one by one or two by two, the staff, the nurses, the attendants, they started coming in, finding someone who could translate and said, oh, you're walking the Camino. We've walked part of the Camino or we've been to Santiago. We want you to get well so you can continue. And I'll tell you, Dan, it was, it was uncanny. As the IV started to get rehydrated and the antibiotics started to take effect, by the end of the day, I started to think, well, maybe this is possible. Yeah. And the next morning, a, a different doctor came in and they ran some tests and they said, we're going to let you go after you eat some lunch, but you can start walking again tomorrow. And I thought, you know, I feel pretty good at this point. So I, I think what that doctor first told me is your Camino is important. It became important to me to finish. And so I, I had to get to Sahagun because I had places, you know, booked to stay. So I, um, I, I made my way. I actually took a taxi there, and the taxi driver that I, he was the next one in line, he said, Oh, Sahagun, I am from there. I will take you there. I can see my parents tonight. Huh. <laughs> so I thought, Great. Then we're about halfway. And it's, I, I, it's different in the United States, but in Spain, at least then, you could sit in the seat next to the driver, yeah. chat with the driver. And I had my backpack and my hiking poles, and I um, we get about halfway across um, that part of Spain towards Sahagun, and he looked at me and said, "Are you walking the Camino?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Well, were you visiting someone in the hospital? You look you look like you're very you're fine." I said, "No, I was very ill yesterday. They took care of me." And then he starts fiddling with the meter, and he's, we're more than halfway across, probably a 60-kilometer trip. And he reset the meter to zero. He said, I'm giving you a discount. You're a pilgrim. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I mean, I, I would be happy to pay, pay him. I, I, I just, you know, I, I, was, I was stunned. But, again, it's the... So when we, when we face adversity and we overcome it, at least when I do, I sometimes reflect and say, what was I supposed to learn from that trial and that difficulty that I eventually surpassed? So when I look back at my stay in the hospital, and I, I can't really understand exactly what I was supposed to, but the best I can make out is that it's not just in the culture of the people along the Camino path to support the pilgrims. It's in the culture of the people in the region, the whole region. And it's, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's um, very supportive. And that made that first walk into Santiago de Compostela quite magical. The fact that I, over, I thought I was going home. I thought my body had failed. I had failed. Yeah. I thought I was headed. I was in a very dark place, of course, but I just thought it was over and I couldn't do it and it wasn't possible for me. And, and yet I made it. Yeah. And it was, it was very magical, including the climb up to Cruz de Ferro and the climb up to Osibero and all of that. But I will tell you, on the second time I walked the Camino, when I was walking out of Carrion de las Condas, that was pretty special because a year ago, a year and a half before that, I left Carrion de las Condas in an ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the second time I was walking out on my own two feet, just feeling great. Yeah. And, and just so special because... You survived and, and you got all that love and care 
and, and all the locals telling you to keep going, push on, and it's very important to you. They knew how special it would be, and they knew exactly what you'd, what you'd get out of it. You know, before we started um, we, we, the, the, the interview, you and I were talking about San Diego, and I was there at Bernie's house 18 months ago or something, and we, Bernie and I were at Solana Beach, which is not far from you, and you talked about walking along the beach and how – you love to get down there because it's it's an easy place to meditate and the sound of the ocean rolling in is not dissimilar to the sound of your breath and how you find that rhythm. Did you find a similar opportunity uh, to meditate on the Camino, the relentless step after step uh, and the, the, the walking, the, the slow tourism, as I sometimes call it, that, that moving through the landscape? Did you find an opportunity to meditate while you walked? Almost every day. Yeah. Almost every day. I, I started out mostly in the mornings. Um, I didn't start out as early as some, but um, the first hour or two of my walk each day, I mostly walked by myself. And to me, that was sort of a movie meditation. I, I just focused on the path and focused on my breath and allow myself to sort of quiet my mind and just walk along and not think about too much because, but then as you, as you start to get hungry and pilgrims are very hungry creatures because we are walking so much, as you start to get hungry and want that second breakfast, then I wanted to be a little more social and so about after an hour or two of walking, you either come upon somebody or somebody catches up to you and you start chatting and, oh, that's, there's a little town that's stopping. You get something to eat. And that, so, yes, I, I was able to, to satisfy my, my uh, meditative needs almost every day, and it was, it was quite stunning. Also, in the evenings, before some of the masses that I went to, I would be I would spend some time in a church by myself and just uh, saying a few prayers and also a little meditation and that was pretty special. And some of the towns didn't have mass. Like I remember in Formista, that's a beautiful church. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's a stunning church. And there's many stunning churches along the Camino, including the big ones like Burgos. And I spent, <clears throat> excuse me, I spent six hours in the church at Burgos, and I don't think I saw it all. But it's stunning and beautiful. And the church at Lyon has that beautiful stained glass way up there, tall, in that tall tower. Oh, it's such a beautiful church also. But... And the church in Pamplona is another striking church. But even in the small towns, the more simple churches are are quite beautiful and quite stunning. And um, what's that little town? Um, San Juan de Ortega, I think it is. Right. It's just about, it's just before you get to Atapuerca and Burgos. And the population is 23, I think. It has a little hotel and a albergue and a bar, and that's about it, and a church. <clears throat> and I walked into that church, and apparently it had been, it had been undergoing some, I, would, I don't know restoration is quite the right word, but some up, uplift on it, some, some cleaning or some deep cleaning or something, and this man was in there, and he didn't, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak much Spanish, but he started sort of giving me a little tour and he'd, he'd wave his hand at this and he would be talking about it. So I took a picture and then over here he'd turn and he'd start talking about this other thing and he gestured to it. So I took another picture, but I love that church. <laughs> I don't know what he was saying. It doesn't matter. He was so proud. He was so proud of his little church. So then when we kind of ended our, our little tour, I sat down in one of the pews and really enjoyed a, a little um, quiet time there. It was, it was, that's a beautiful church. It's wow. not always open, but it's a beautiful little church. Yeah, and there are so many. Taking the time I've said here before, uh, I've walked in uh, 
sort of late July, early August uh, in 2016. It was so hot. It was really, really hot. And often the coolest place to sit and reflect was the back of a church. And it was really lovely to step out of the bright light and into the darkness. Often you'd get a little bit of quiet time and a little bit of cool. Yeah, they're beautiful, those churches, aren't they? You spend a lot of time in Thailand and you do a lot of yoga over there. You met a young, you met an Australian, Tom, and you ended up taking him back, or not taking him back, but encouraging him or inviting him to walk the Camino with you. Um, and and he sort of said, I'll, I'll come for the walk, but I, I don't know that I'd necessarily be a pilgrim, but he, he came to love it, didn't he? Yes, Tom and I got together in, in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand. We were do, practicing yoga at the same place, and we became friends and with, along with his girlfriend, Julie. And then he got he he told me that he had, he knew Bill Bennett when I told him that was one of my favorite books was by a fellow from Sydney also yeah. Bill Bennett and he said oh I know Bill Bennett and I I worked on some projects with him I didn't know he walked the Camino I said well he did so that got Tom very interested in my Camino and while I was walking the Camino I kept a blog and he he would comment a few times sent me some emails when I saw him in Chiang Mai the next year. He said to me, if you ever think about doing that again, I want to go. And that was about the time I was thinking I had unfinished business with St. James, and I did want to return. And I, I, had made a, I had made a proposal to my boss that in between some major projects at work, I might be able to go in the fall, the second time of that next year. So... Tom and I met in Paris, and his girlfriend was going to meet us later. And he told me up front that this was to him was not spiritual or religious. It was what he called a walkabout, or what we asked. He said, "I think we Australians call this a walkabout. That's what it is for me." And I noticed that he also wanted to be involved in the culture and experience the culture. So. He often went to pilgrims' masses with me, and yeah. and then when his girlfriend joined us at um, I forget the name of the town, uh, not Colorado, it was before that. Anyway, when she met us, the three of us would attend masses together. And I, after um, Julie joined Tom, I didn't see them every day because we stayed in different places most of the time. And but I I kept in touch, and so. We, we were back together again, and we were walking out of Astorga. And Tom turned to me and he said, thank you for bringing me here. This has been one of the deepest spiritual experiences of my life. And wow. my first thought was, well, I didn't bring you here. You did. But I was so happy that he had that experience. But on another hand, how could it not be spiritual? You're immersed in this, this history. You're walking into these small towns where the people welcome you and want to support you. And it's so different and it, it's just, it's just, a, how could it not be a spiritual experience? Um, yeah. And I'm just very happy that he had that experience because his, his motivation was just to take a long walk and it became much deeper just as it has for so many people. Yeah. That's right. And I suppose even if you go there with, the, with, a, with an intention to simply go on a long walk, it's very difficult not to be swept up in the spirit and the energy of it, isn't it? It's, even, yeah. go, even just going for a long walk and an adventure is valid reason enough, but it's very difficult yes. not to be sort of swept up in the, in the emotion and the spirituality of it as well. And, and, and not to... Um keep coming back to Jack Hitt, but he said one of the cool things about the road to Santiago is that almost any motivation to go ends up being a great one. Yeah. He also said the road will shape your motivation into something far more pilgrimy than you anticipated. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. It will shape you. And, yeah, that's right. Into something more pilgrimy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what happened to Tom and, without him knowing it. And he was, he and I have talked about our mutual Camino experiences since then. 
And he loved it. And we would like to possibly, we were actually planning before the pandemic to walk the Via de la Plata from Sevilla up to, um, well, cut across to Arenza. But we were planning to do that in the spring a year ago, but it wasn't to be, and maybe it'll be next year. We'll see. Yeah. So that was my final question. Um, what's on the horizon? You do a lot of work from home. Are, are you able to get back to Thailand? You, your great love of Chiang Mai, are, are you able to travel? Or what's, what's the latest from your neck of the woods? What are you expecting on the horizon? Well, I'm expecting that Thailand's having some difficulty with the pandemic right now, and they're hoping to open up partly in July. And I am hopeful that I can take a break from work. When I'm, actually, when I'm on my yoga trips to Chiang Mai, I work about half time from there because I'm a computer system admin and I can do the computers I manage don't care where I am. So that's a cool thing about being in technology. And so I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that I can get back and experience a different culture and great food and practice yoga every day and the yoga at that studio is a little bit advanced and it pushes me, which is good. And maybe I'll be breaking in a pair of hiking shoes to walk the Via de la Plata in the spring of 2022. That's kind of what I'm hoping, but I don't know if I'll be able to get back to Spain that soon. It also depends on, I'd like to go with Tom again and we'll see if he's able to go. Yeah. Well, we all are so uh, excited, I suppose, to just see those pictures just recently, the pilgrims back on the trail again. And it, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's only a matter of time before we are back there. And, and I wanted also just to quickly mention, and you might just tell us about your, your hosting sort of Zoom gatherings, I, as I understand it. You, you're doing something for the San Diego chapter. Tell us about that. Well, I... We had a, the San Diego chapter had a couple walks, uh, local walks at a, at a bay called Mission Bay in San Diego. And I was talking to the coordinator of the San Diego chapter. And I said, you know, there are all these Zoom meetings going on. Maybe we should have a Zoom meeting. And she said, well, American Pilgrims on the Camino has a Zoom account. We could use that if you will host. <laughs> so I, I realized I had just put my foot in my mouth. So I, <laughs> I, I said, sure, why not? And so I host, my job as the host is to keep people talking and to um, threaten them that if they don't give their stories, they'll hear mine again. So <laughs> I, um, I have been very grateful that we have in our San Diego chapter a good number of people who've walked the Camino several times and who are eager to share stories with some new aspiring pilgrims who yeah. would like to answer their questions. And Fantastic. We get a good mix of people from all... We, we get... On each of our Zoom calls, we have between 20 and 30 people. Nice. And that's a nice, nice yeah. group. And it's yeah. a lot of fun. But the, the goal is to provide information to people who want to walk or want to go walk again. And also to share stories. And through Zoom, we've gotten, it's convenient, it's um, safe, and we've gotten, I think, a little bit closer than had we been having in-person meetings, which don't always get as many people because it's not quite as convenient. So yeah. this is, it's been one of the good offshoots of, of the pandemic, and we'll yeah. keep that up along with in-person meetings as things open up more. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it has made the world a smaller place in some respects because we've all come to come to learn how so, to communicate via screens. It's amazing, really. Yes, there's one more there's one more thought that I had, and it's I was just reminded of a quote from Anthony Bourdain, the, the uh, chef. He said, "Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you." It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your mind and your body. Yeah. 
Wow. So that also relates directly to me, to the Camino, and it, I think it sums up my Camino experience in that it isn't always pretty, it isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts when you're going up that long hill to Alto de Pardon and that difficult downhill, but that's okay. It changes you and it makes you more resilient and more adaptable. And in these times, being adaptable is definitely a good thing. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, wow. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, James. Thanks so much. Um, I, I, oh, I enjoyed hope, it. Yeah, I look forward to the day our paths cross, and uh, I can't wait to get back down to Southern California again to hang out. It's going to be, it won't be too far away, I can tell you. In the meantime, Buen Camino. Buen Camino, Dan. My guest this week was James Geyer from Southern California. All our worlds are oscillating wildly. We continue to cherish our leap of faith. The American author Veronica Roth wrote in the book Allegiant, There are so many ways to be brave in this world. Sometimes bravery involves laying down your life for something bigger than yourself or for someone else. Sometimes it involves giving up everything you have ever known or everyone you have ever loved for the sake of something greater. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's nothing more than gritting your teeth through pain and the work of every day, the slow walk toward a better life. That is the sort of bravery I must have now. Thank you for your company this week and every week. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino.